Ryan, are you there? Hello, Michael. Hello, Internet. Hello, world. Hello, worldwide Internet. Welcome to another edition of the Buck and Sack Show. I'm Michael Saxon. Steamy San Francisco, Ryan. It got up to 80 degrees today in the city. It was so great. Dang, man. Uh, how are things in Portland, Oregon for you? Uh, the things are great. The weather has been kind of a typical on and off drizzly sunshine peeking through. Actually, this week it felt almost a little bit like Midwest weather. There was a little bit of humidity, a lot of overcast, seemed like it was warmer than the lightness outside would really dictate. Uh, overall, it's been a little bit funky, but it's been just fine. Yeah. Well, Damian Lillard's heating things up for you right now. <laughs> He sure is, man. It's that, That's been a fun battle to watch. I mean, I, I think at this point, he and Westbrook are, are for my money, two of the best uh, individuals to watch match up against each other right now Yeah. Uh, on, in, in the NBA. They just, they, they're both, uh, you know, they come from tough backgrounds. They're, they're kind of, I think that uh, Russ is a little bit more of a, a talker than Dame typically is, but Damian, he, he likes to mix it up too. So it's uh, it's been fun watching those two go at it. Yeah, they don't like each other. And we're going to no, talk, they do not. We're gonna talk about that. Uh, as the show goes on. But I know you've got a big trip coming up here, I think, tomorrow. So why don't you get us started with that for your good of the week? Yeah, my good of the week, a boys weekend, or not just any boys weekend, a bachelor party weekend. I, Your I bachelor before, party but My bachelor party weekend, yeah. yeah I'm, I am excited to, uh, I mean, more than anything, and yeah, it's, it's a party for me, but at the same time, like, it's just... Uh, my buddies have gotten really good at kind of using bachelor parties as an opportunity to, to really just have a great guys trip. Yeah. I've done a couple of them now where, you know, maybe the location seems like a little far away. It seems a little extreme, but what, what's ended up is, you know, anywhere between, you know, eight and, you know, 14 or 16 people together in a, in a cool place that a lot of people haven't visited or haven't been in some time and everyone just getting together and enjoying the weekend. I, in the last couple of years, I've been to New York City on a bachelor party, and I've been to Cabo on a bachelor party, and the pretty far away and a little bit expensive to get to, but um, but it's a, a really good time with uh, some good people. And that's what this weekend's going to be. So it does start tomorrow. It's uh, we I'm leaving at about three twenty in the afternoon from Portland. We're flying into Nashville. We'll get there around uh, around midnight, and and then we'll be in Nashville for the NFL draft on Thursday mm -hmm. before Friday picking up an RV and taking it down to Talladega, Alabama uh, and parking it in the infield and camping for the Talladega, is it Geico 500? I think it might be, uh, but the Talladega 500. Yeah. Great. So that is, that is what's in store for the weekend. And I, I'm just, like I said, I'm mostly just juiced to, to get this together with my, my very best friends in the world and, and, and have, share this experience with them. It's, I've got a, a short a sports bucket list of, kind of one-time events I've wanted to hit and the Kentucky Derby and the, and Talladega. And I'm trying to think there's one more. Masters. Uh, oh, and the Masters. Yes. Are the, are the, are really at the top of my list. I, right. I figured that Talladega would be the toughest one to pull off after getting married. So I could, I could bring my future wife to the Masters or the Kentucky Derby. She would thoroughly enjoy both those experiences, but this is the one that should be done uh, solo with the boys. So yeah. I'm pumped about it. I would take an, any uh, you know info or insights you have as to uh, the lay of the land in Alabama and or a southern style NASCAR race? We've been to the Sonoma one uh, together, but I know that this one is a much different animal. Yeah, I've been to Talladega the last two years, both for the fall race, never for the mm -hmm. spring race. 
Um, you know, I have never had an RV there. I've never camped in an RV at a NASCAR race, much less the infield. Sounds like you're really setting yourself up for a great time. Uh, do you guys have anything planned at all other than going to the race? Are you going to go to the Saturday race, I assume? So I actually don't know. As The Bachelor, I've been left dark on most of this. Really oh, cool. what I know are people's travel itineraries. And I, I know, I mean, I know the rough idea of being in Nashville Thursday, heading to Talladega Friday. I think the goal is to get there before uh, sun goes down Friday so we can kind of get all set up down there and be ready to go for Friday through Sunday. But I actually don't know like what specifically – is on the itinerary. So uh, some of it's being left, most of it is being left a mystery to me. I just know the very, very basics. Okay. Well, having said that, you know, I don't, I can't give you a lot. I will say uh, Talladega is out in the middle of nowhere, which comes to the surprise of exactly no one. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know how much there is to do. I know I told you uh, in the fall when I come back, I think I saw signs on my way into the racetrack for, I think three different gun ranges. So uh, I would bet that your friends have a trip to the gun range uh, planned for you, if I were to bet. That may be. But, but I don't know. I, I, you know, you should probably do that. There's also plenty of places around there to go fishing. Uh, I don't know what a boat rental or gear rental would be like, so I don't know. But that would probably be fun. But, you know, I don't know if I would recommend doing a whole lot. I mean, you're going to have an RV in the infield. You're going to have the... Uh, what do they call it now? The Xfinity Series race on Saturday. There mm-hmm. may even be the Trucks race on Friday. I'm not sure about that. Um, so I'd assume you're going to be uh, taking some of that in. I assume you're going to be cooking some meats on a grill. And I'd assume you're going to be drinking, maybe trying to set and then reset your own personal beer drinking record each day <laughs> that you're there. Um, that would certainly be on my agenda. Um, and outside of that, you know, I think just walking around, taking in the sights. I will say this: um, there's, you know, there's a lot of area just outside and around the track where people park and hang out. And there's, uh, you know, there's the official merch uh, tents and trucks and whatever in and around the track. But I would uh, suggest uh, venturing out, kind of on the main road, the main road that feeds in from the highway to the track uh-huh. there's some sort of unofficial merch stands out there that are really something else to be seen i mean you'll see a lot nice. of That's a good tip yeah a lot of gear uh kind of being proud of our president if you're into that sort of thing but beyond that uh there's some really cool merch stands where you'll find like you know, those die, die cast cars, you know, uh-huh. going back to, to drivers that you've never heard of that drove 40 years ago and some really good deals to be found, some cool shirts and flags and stuff like that. So I would just suggest kind of walking out there and seeing the non-official merch, um, if that cool. makes sense. I think that would be yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm into that. Yeah, and then, you know, you can just take a few beers and that, that'll kill off a couple hours because you're going to be out there for, what, two nights? Uh, so we're going to be out there, actually three, because we're going to be Sunday? there. For, we're staying Sunday and we're leaving Monday morning. Okay, that's probably smart, but that's hardcore, yeah. and that's a lot of time to be out there. Um, for sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think we're going to pace ourselves. I, I, what we're, I think 
at least for myself, I'm viewing it as just like a like a three day tailgate kind of. And you know, if you know just of being at a football tailgate, if you're going to be there all day, you can't go wild from hour one. You've got to kind of pace it and, and lead up to it and take a couple breaks and make sure you're fully hydrated. So there'll be a lot of wandering, a lot of uh, a lot of partying. But uh, I think that we'll all be building up to uh, obviously the big race and maybe the big one on Sunday. Yeah, I've been twice now and haven't seen a single freaking wreck at Talladega. Wow. Yeah, both races I went to were incredibly boring. Um, so I hope that that doesn't happen for you. But it's going to be a great experience. Now, uh, back to Nashville. What are you planning to do for the draft? Are you going to the draft itself? Also a mystery to me. I'm okay. not sure. I think that uh, I know that something to do with the draft is in the works and... I don't know if it's actually being there, if we've rented a space at a bar, or uh-huh. if we're going to go to like whatever the NFL experience is and kick around and then go to dinner. I'm really not sure. I just okay. know that draft will be viewed in some capacity, somewhere, some way. Gotcha. Well, that's a really cool thing. I've actually never heard of, of that setup where we keep The Bachelor totally in dark, in the dark. Um, so that's, that's really cool. I'm sure you're really excited. It's really cool of your friends to just sort of keep you uh, sort of hanging on the surprise like that. I'm I'm jealous of that. I mean, you, there's few things in life where you're you're truly surprised in that fashion. So that's going to be awesome. Uh, I really look forward to hearing about it next week on the podcast. I'm sure I'll have many stories, but uh, let's go ahead and move forward. Let hit me with your good of the week. Yeah, my good of the week is looking ahead to the second round of the NBA playoffs. The first round, uh, not that exciting. A lot of the series. Or over several closed out tonight. In fact, two closed out tonight. And Denver is blowing the doors off of the Spurs yeah. as we speak. Yeah, they are. Um, the, the, if the Blazers win this game, they will close out the Thunder. And they've now taken the lead. The, the Blazers were down most of the game, but now as we head to the half, they, they've taken the lead. So if they can hold on, they will close that out as well. So it's really been just sort of a, a lackluster first round. But I think the second round is going to be a good, as good of a second round, Ryan, as I can ever remember. Uh, the matchups are basically set, although neither the Rockets nor Warriors have closed out yet, um, but they both look to, so they would play in the Western 1-4 uh, matchup, and then the, if the Blazers can hold on, they would face the winner of Denver and San Antonio. Then the, in the East, it's totally set. You've got uh, the mm-hmm. Bucks facing the Celtics in the 1-4 and then you're, you're going to have the Sixers and Raptors in the 2-3. And, the, and those two Eastern Conference uh, matchups, I think, are incredible. I really yep. don't know who I think is going to win either one, although I would give the edge to the Raptors. I, I think that they're a better team. I think the Celtics are playing as well as they have all season, but mm-hmm. the Bucks have the home court, so they're going to have a tough road ahead, are the Celtics. And then in the West, you know, a rematch of last year's Western Conference Finals with the Warriors and Rockets, a, a series that went to Game 7. Even though Chris Paul didn't play in that Game 7, I think the Rockets missed 27 straight threes in that game, and the Warriors yep. you know, were really lucky to win that game and then march on to their third championship in four years. So the Warriors really had their work cut out for them, Ryan. I think this is going to about as intriguing of a second-round matchup as you can have with a, a team that's trying to go for the three-peat. And then whoever comes out of these other two series will be a really fun matchup, too. It looks right now like it's probably going to be Portland-Denver. Uh, but I think everybody's eyes are going to be on that Golden State-Houston series. And I'm just really excited for it. I think, again, after a, a lackluster first round, we're going to have a really awesome second round. It's going to be must-see TV 
every night for probably close to two weeks with these four series. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. How do you feel? Yeah, I 100% agree. It was, I almost made my bat of the week the first round of these NBA playoffs, save for that Clippers comeback, which was, regardless, even if you're not a Warriors, or even if you are a Warriors fan, you, the impressiveness of that uh, comeback, it was, it was something to behold. But beyond that, it has been a lackluster first round. The only good quote, series you have is that one you mentioned between the Spurs and Nuggets. That's the only one that was even after four games. Right. And and, and now, as you mentioned, the Nuggets are just absolutely throttling the Spurs. So we'll see if San Antonio can come back from that. Uh, but it's just, I almost wish we could do something different with the first round. Maybe make them five-game series so there's a little bit more urgency. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I mean, obviously... The the revenue for the owners is so crucial. Taking away games or taking away teams probably doesn't make sense. But maybe we could seed it differently. Maybe we could get rid of East versus West and do one through sixteen seed or something. I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but this first round of the playoffs is kind of for the birds. I mean, there there has not been really a, a great series this year. I can't. I know that there have been instances where we've seen upsets in the first round, but it, they seem so few and far between. It almost feels like a waste. But that being said, I am jacked for these, uh, these second round series. They are all exactly the series you would have wanted. It's a little bit like people in the March madness tournament complaining. There weren't enough upsets early, but then boy, you got the, the blue blood matchups and the high seed or the, I should say the low seed matchups you really wanted. And that's what we're getting now. I mean, I think it's an incredibly dangerous spot for the defending champs and the warriors, uh, facing the Rockets, and no, they haven't both punched their ticket, but they're both going to. Um, and then, like you said, I, I think the East is wide open. If you told me that any of those four teams were going to be in the NBA Finals, I would believe you. I yeah. wouldn't say there's no way that's happening. Uh, so I, I think there's enough there. I like the way that the obviously the Celtics are, are hitting a stride now, or they just they kind of had their way with Indiana, but they've been a little off most of the season. I, I believe in Brad Stevens. I worry a little bit what's going on with the chemistry there, and, and Marcus Smart's injury uh, could, could be more important this series than it was the last. But the Bucks are playing fantastic ball, except for their first game hiccup. The Raptors are playing fantastic ball, and uh, and it's going to be. You know, I don't really know what to make of that. Uh, of, I guess I'm assuming Portland comes out against OKC, and then we're probably going to get Denver too. So that really should be a good series too. I'm a little bit less confident to call what that matchup is going to be. But all the other ones that we essentially know are going to be killer, and I can't wait. Let's break down the Warriors-Rockets a little bit, Ryan. Uh, how, how worried are you about your Warriors heading into this series? Reasonably worried. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that they obviously will be favored and should be favored. I think they should win. I don't know if they will. We've talked about how difficult it is to three-peat. We've, now they're having to do a little bit different things rotation-wise with, that, with the absence of DeMarcus Cousins. And no, he isn't the linchpin, but when you have to start making changes at this time of the year, and it just seems like everybody on that roster right now is a little bit streaky. Steph has a great game, then he has a terrible game. KD has a couple terrible games, then he dominates. Clay has a couple bad games, then he's on fire. And I think that's okay and that you know part of the reason you have this collection of talent is so you can afford to go through stretches where you either have injury or you have cold streaks, but the Rockets seem like they're firing on all cylinders and their defense has really stepped it up a notch. The Warriors offensively do not look as in sync as we've seen them in years past. I think that 
so much of Durant's domination comes from ISO, and that's not really hasn't really been the Warriors' thing. So it's almost like they're trying to play two different styles when it's Durant versus when it's everybody else. And uh, I think it's going to be a good series. I think it may go seven. I still think the Warriors will win, but I think they are very vulnerable. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. To me, uh, the series comes down to defense. You know, uh, both of these teams are sort of known in the public as offensive teams, obviously. They both sort of revolutionized the game. The Warriors with the three-point shooting, uh, with the Splash Brothers and the Rockets once they got hardened, and then CP3 kicked it into another gear. But to me, it's really about defense, and I think the loss of Cousins is a large one. I mean, Andrew Bogut is filling in admirably, but he doesn't have nearly the offensive game that DeMarcus Cousins has. Not even close. Which I think puts more pressure on the Warrior defense. With Cousins in there, they can basically outscore almost anyone, and it doesn't Mm -hmm. really matter. Uh, It's not that it doesn't really matter, but that, you know, it covers up uh, a night where they're not uh, on full throttle on the defensive end. But without Cousins in there, I think the Warriors against this Rockets team are going to have to be playing lights-out defense for four games to get those four wins. They're going to have, you know, Harden now is basically unguardable, and CP3 seems to be fully healthy, and, you know, he, he's playing at, at a high, high level. And then there, there are other guys. Capella is a great man in the middle there with this pick-and-roll lob series that he runs with both Paul and Harden. Tucker is a very, very good player, as is Eric Gordon. Uh, I don't know yeah, if they're... Savvy vets. Yeah, they're not particularly deep, but they've been building towards this with their GM, Daryl Morey. He brings in Harden, then he brings in Mike D'Antoni, then he brings in CP3. He's built all these pieces around James Harden, and they've been building towards winning the Western Conference and then taking a shot in an NBA championship now for six or seven years, and this is probably their best shot now to get the Warriors, who seem to have all kinds of chemistry issues, who have, as you said, guys seem to disappear for periods of games, if not entire games, and really defensively, you know, I don't think they're as good as they've been in the playoffs the last few years, so... Uh, this is, as I said, the Rockets' best shot, and it's really going to be something I think the Rock, uh, the Warriors having games one and game seven at home is something they have to take advantage. They cannot lose game one. I think it's really, really important that they win game one whenever that is. So that, I almost think it's important that they win games one and two. Yeah, I think they can't have a collapse like a great game one and then – Game two to me is, I don't want to say it's more important, but if they lose before going to Houston, the game before going to Houston, I don't like that. what that does momentum-wise. So I think both one and two are super crucial. And the other thing that we haven't mentioned yet, and I hope it is not an issue, but is, is that could be crucial in a series with a player like James Harden is refereeing and fouls and how the games get officiated, how flopping is officiated, how much they either let them play or don't let them play, and then how both, uh, not, I shouldn't even say both coaches, how Steve Kerr manages potential foul trouble because we saw it bite his guys uh, a little bit earlier in this series, but um, I, I don't know that it, I, I don't think these series ever really come down to refereeing. I just hope it's not a central or central focal point for the media and everyone else. Yeah, I think you may bring up a good point, and there's another side to that. It's not just how the games are officiated, but it's how the teams react to the yes, calls. Yes, the Warriors are not good at that, and in close games, 
they I don't I don't want to say they melt down, but when things aren't going their way, they're a little bit like the spoiled kid who isn't used to not like things going their way and expecting everything to be right. And we're supposed to be the best and we're supposed to be better and things are supposed to happen the way we want them to. And when we don't, they kind of get cranky and bitchy and that can't happen in this series. Yeah. And they spend too much more time and energy bitching about the refs than they do worrying about playing basketball. And I think that's yep. a, le- a legitimate concern. Yep. And I, I have to think that Steve Kerr and his staff are talking to his, their team about that because it, it's a big thing. And it's not just one guy. It's not just Draymond. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. watch... These, it's an attitude. It's a whole team. It is. And, you you know, all of these guys, from Durant to Curry, uh, Clay not so much, Bogut certainly, Iguodala certainly, uh, mm-hmm. they all just complain to the refs so much and it's become an NBA ep- epidemic Ryan I don't want to get into it but it reminds me of you know watching the World Cup soccer where it's it's not so much the flopping but it's the complaining and getting in refs faces and just really acting like you said spoiled children you know I have a uh, four and a two-year-old and and you know, the four-year-old, particularly Kyle, I love him to death, but he's in a very whiny stage. And it's like, nobody likes that. It's just nobody in, in a position of authority enjoys somebody bitching at him all the time. It just sets a no. bad vibe and a va- bad tone. And these guys need to focus on their job, which is to play basketball on both ends of the floor and let the rest do their job. And eventually, I think the calls just sort of even out if you just let things go. Yeah, unless we're talking about something in the final couple possessions of the game or a foul that drives a superstar out, these games are not coming down to the calls themselves. So find a way to get past them because the team that does that better is the team that's going to have more success. I agree. Just being cool and calm under pressure, I think. It's a big part of this game, big part of the series, uh, big part of any sport. So that's my good of the week. Second round of the playoffs coming up. What's your bad of the week? Uh, my bat of the week is still in the world of basketball, but it is in relation to a team that is not in there, and it's the Phoenix Suns. And like I said, I was going to go with the first round, but I think we kind of tackled that uh, in anticipation of the second round. But basically, Phoenix Suns are and have been a mess, and now it now it continues. They, they brought on a guy who I'd never heard of before named Igor Kokoskov to be their head coach this last season, and now they've fired him after one year at the helm in a year that was essentially meant to be a tank year. So I don't really understand. I mean, some of these guys are just, they're prisoners of their circumstances and circumstances that often the front offices create. We see it in other, in other sports too, but the, the sun strike me as particularly problematic and, and just the teams that have dysfunction up front seem to be the ones that find their way to the bottom. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And, you know, we've seen it with, with the Knicks. We've seen it with the Washington Redskins. We, we've seen it with the Orioles. We, we've seen it with a bunch of these teams who there it seems like there's either infighting or, um, or, or power struggles. And, and now that team, for me, that's kind of taking the cake on that is the Phoenix Suns. And so if you haven't been following, they've, now, they've fired this head coach. And there are reports that part of the reason is that he wanted to draft Ja Morant over Zion Williamson if they won the lottery. Huh. And so, and, and they basically said, if you think like that, we can't have you around. And so I don't know that that's the entire story there, but he has been relieved of his duties. Uh, the fact that there are people in that organization that are considering Ja Morant before Zion Williamson, it's not that Ja isn't going to be a great pro. He will be. 
But th- this seems like one of those drafts that even if you like Jaw a little better, you, you take Zion so as to not fuck this thing up. And they, but they've had it's not just it's not just this one decision or or these specific issues. Last season, they fired their was it was it hmm, now I'm trying to remember, but I know that in both of the last two seasons they fired key people early. They fired Earl Watson yeah, after Earl like Watson. eight or like eight or twelve games, and then before that they fired their GM Ryan McDonough like not like also early like three games into the season. Yeah, right away, and yeah. I'm like, it, it almost feels like they're not even giving guys the opportunity to let it work, or they're just admitting that we've hired the wrong guy right out of the gate and trying to trying to get back on the right track but whatever it is it's a mess and i start to feel bad for some of the fans of these franchises where you know the good paying people can't seem to avoid the misfortune that the owners and and sometimes and management create for them sometimes and you know i i know that it's a it's a choice for everybody but i even saw a former warrior uh and i believe was matt barnes a former son as well anyhow he uh, tweeted about it and basically accused the uh, the Phoenix ownership and front office of wasting Devin Booker's career and said that they have no idea what they're doing. And I think I think he's right, and I think it's disappointing for for young guys like Booker who want to play and want to play well right now to kind of have to go through those situations. And whether it's a player, whether it's a coach, whether it's an exec, uh, sometimes the environment that you're in just does not lend to success regardless of what you did on your end and and that seems like phoenix is one of those places now yeah they're an unmitigated disaster of a franchise and as we often talk about when we talk about bad pro sports franchises i think it all goes to the owner um and in this case it's robert sarver who has owned Mm -hmm. the team for a long while now Uh, they've had very little success under his ownership and And if i could just interrupt you for one second i just as i have the tweet now matt barnes tweeted earlier today uh, or I guess this would be last night. He said, coaching isn't the problem with the Suns. The owner is. Sarver's the worst owner in the NBA. Do the city of Phoenix a solid and sell the team. They deserve a winner, and you're wasting Devin Booker's career. Yeah, um, I'm trying to figure out how long he's owned the team for. He's widely known as just not being a great guy. Um, he's not well-liked in or, in or out of basketball. Um, and I'm just looking some things up here, Ryan. They've missed the playoffs now for nine straight seasons. Um, and they have not won more than 24 games in the last four seasons. Prior to that, they were respectable. They won 39 and 48 games. But prior to that, um, if you go back to the 2010 season, between the tw- you know going all the way back to 89, between 89 and 2010, they made the playoffs every single year including a couple finals appearances where they famously Mm -hmm. lost when they had Sir Charles. They lost to the Bulls. Of course, they had... The triple OT game they had in that that NBA finals, I remember pretty well. uh, Steve Nash won his two MVPs there. Amari Mm -hmm. Stoudemire, Mike D'Antoni won a couple Coach of the Year awards. So it's not like they're, you know, the New York Knicks or some of these other franchises that I see people comparing them to on Twitter. I don't think they're that bad. Uh, we're really talking about a decade of horribleness, uh, but that's long enough. Um, and they've and they've made, as you say, just some horrible personnel decisions. Uh, both. And the timing of some of those decisions just seemed the most head scratching, and seemed to be a, a larger indicator of, of more 
kind of widespread or broad problems in the organization. Yeah, and but but the other thing they've done a horrible job of is drafting players. Um, so over these court nine years, they had the number one pick last year. They took uh, DeAndre Ayton. They had the fourth overall pick the prior year, who they took Josh Jackson. The year before that, they had the fourth overall pick, and they took Dragon Bender, who mm-hmm. I forgot even existed. Yeah. Um, I don't yeah, think I he's in too. the league now. That was three years ago that they took him. Uh, the year before that, they took Booker, 13th overall. The year before that, they took TJ Warren, 14th overall. And then my guy, Tyler Ennis, out of Cuse, 18th overall. Both of those guys are, are worthless. Uh, the year before that, they took Alex Len, uh, fifth overall, who is nothing more than a role player at center. The year before that, they took 13th overall, Kendall Marshall out of UNC, who never amounted to anything. Mm-hmm. The year before that, also the 13th overall, Markeith Morris, who's been nothing more than a role player. Uh, they didn't have a first-round pick. So that that's the nine straight years of being in the lottery. Uh, those are their players. There, there's really only one guy who's of any significance at all, and that's Devin Booker. Uh, the jury's still out on Jackson and Ayton. But, you know, none of these guys have been worth a damn. So if you're going to be in the lottery every year, Ryan, you got to draft a player that's going to at least be a starter or a sixth or seventh rotation guy in the NBA. And then you need a coach and you need a GM, and they haven't had any of those things. So what do you have when you have all that? you got nine straight losing seasons, and you're, you know, you're one of the worst franchises in the NBA. Yeah, I think that's uh, that sums it up pretty nicely. And I don't, I don't know what it was that uh, kind of struck my ire about it, but I just, or, or that that got me interested in it. But I was I was looking at some of the recent transactions and the way the way that it's gone down, and it's just I feel almost fortunate to be fans of franchises that haven't been screwing it up recently. Although I've lived through a lot of times when they have been screwing it up. Yeah. I mean, obviously the the Chris Cohan and Robert Rowell years of the the Golden State Warriors was was really miserable. Uh, the Giants before uh, before the Peter McGowan era was not good. And uh, but but now you know it, it makes all the difference if you're a fan of a team if for for ownership and uh, and management that has things figured it out. And uh, yeah, that's where we are. Yeah, but I I just want to end on this because this cannot be stressed enough. You go down the list of worst franchises in all four of the pro major sports, and the common thread with all of them is the owner. And it's usually an owner who sticks around for a long time and doesn't sell. You know, whether it's James Dolan in New York or whoever's uh, Jimmy Haslam in Cleveland and, and guys before him, uh, Bill Bidwell in it, with the Arizona Cardinals, now Sarver with the Phoenix Suns. I mean, the, the list is long, and, and it always goes down to the owner. And, and that's really kind of where, where it starts and ends with all of these situations. So it's it's just... If you're a fan of one of these teams, you can't trade the owner. And that's the one guy you can't trade. And it just totally sucks to be a fan of one of these franchises with just a complete dog crap owner. So, uh, Amen. Good, good bad of the week. Um, my bad of the week is I'm, we're going to go back. or actually Not we're going to go back. We're going to stay on the NBA hardwood. And I'm going to keep this brief. Uh, the Suns drew your ire. Number zero. For the Oklahoma City Thunder, Russell Westbrook, mm. I've had enough. I've had enough of his act. And it, and, it, and it sort of started in his press conference after game three. Ooh, the, the Vegas Knights just scored again. 
to go up three that might, nothing. That in the might third be period. curtains for the Sharkies. Very well, maybe. Uh, but I digress. So <clears throat> Russell Westbrook, after Game Three, a game that he won at home after coming back home down 2-0, uh, he played pretty well. He's sitting there with his with his teammate Paul George and this this columnist, longtime Oklahoma. Uh, columnist uh, Barry Trammell asked Russ a couple questions, and Russ just every question he asked didn't matter what it was. Next saying, question. Next question. Next question. And he was kind of looking down. He clearly didn't want to be there. And this is just another in a long line of Russell Westbrook's annex. And it's just a tired act. Uh, he's a great player, Ryan. I think he's one of the uh, most uniquely gifted players in the history of the league. He's now in the regular season, averaged a triple-double for three years in a row. He won the MVP three years ago in the 2016-17 series, which was his best season. But now, if, if he, they lose to the Blazers in this first round, it'll be three straight first-round exits for him. He will have lost the year that he won the MVP to James Harden and the Rockets in Game 5, where he didn't play well. Then he will have lost in six games last year to a rookie point guard in Donovan Mitchell and the Utah Jazz. And if they lose this year, which they might lose tonight, uh, they will have lost to what most people think is sort of an inferior point guard across the way from him in Damian Lillard and the Blazers. Although at this point, I think Bla uh, Lillard has sort of proven that he's not an inferior player. But just in terms no. of the public perception, I think that you know Lillard has, for his entire career, taken a back seat to Russell Westbrook. And, you know, mm -hmm. I looked at the numbers, and I'm just looking, comparing regular season numbers to playoff numbers, and there's no doubt that he does not play as well on average in the playoffs as he does in the regular season. Um, you know, we can go through the numbers, but the player efficiency rating numbers are really are what jump out to me. This year, he had a PER of 21.1 in the regular season. Coming into tonight, he had a 14.2 in the playoffs. Uh, last year, 24-7 in the regular, 20.3 in the playoffs. And then the year that he won the MVP, he had a preposterous 30.6 in the regular season, which is, I think, one of the single season in the history of the league. And then he was very good in the playoffs with a 27.7, but a tick below his regular season output. So I don't know what it is. Uh, he, he, he has a lower uh, shooting percentage in all three of these years in the playoffs than he does in the regular season. And he, he seems to do one of two things in these games where his team's losing. He either takes way too many shots or just doesn't really shoot at all. You saw that the other night in game four where he basically, I think he only took two shots in the fourth quarter with his team trailing. And it's getting to the point where I think he's in his own head. I think that he knows, you know, that he's kind of failing his franchise. And the, the whole thing is just weird, you know. The, they had him, Harden, and Durant. Obviously, now he's the only one left. It's the only pro sports team in town. The fans love him. And it seems like he's almost got a blank check to do and say whatever he wants or, in many cases, say nothing. He just seems to be in a bad mood all the time. I yeah. don't really understand. Like, have you ever seen the guy smile, Ryan? I can't remember it. And he just... No. He just seems I mean, not... to have this shitty attitude all the time. And I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of his act on the court. I'm tired of his act on the court. I'm, I should say off the court. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, he's 30 years old now. I think this is his 12th NBA season. 
so he's not getting any younger. But he's been to one NBA Finals when he had both Harden and Durant. Uh, the, the only other real success he's had in the playoffs was the year that they had the 3-1 lead on the Warriors with Durant, and the Warriors came storming back and won in the Western Finals. But outside of that, he hasn't done much at all in the playoffs over the course of his career. And I think he's going to go down. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is failing me here. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think he's going to go right. down as one of these players who's been an all-time great regular season player that just doesn't live up to it when the postseason hits. What are your thoughts? Yeah, there's a lot here. And first of all, yeah, as far as one of the things that stuck out is how he is or acts at, at the end of games. And it almost feels like he plays the first three quarters trying to be a, a, a good teammate and make all the right decisions. And then he decides like come fourth quarter. All right, you know what? Fine. You guys do it. Or, you know what? Screw you guys. I'm doing it. And and it's like there's not a balance between. You right. know what I'm saying? There's no like, media. No, there isn't. It's it's like either giving up like, "All right, you know what? Fine. You guys do it then." Or I I I have no choice but to take over myself. And it's one way or the other and it's never in between. And that's kind of who he is. It's there isn't a happy medium with him. He's mostly angry, rarely happy always carrying this chip or seemingly having a grudge. He doesn't like, uh, you know, doesn't like a lot of other players, doesn't, you know, has issues sometimes with his own teammates, his own coaches. Uh, he's, he's just really bombastic and it's, and he's easy to not like. And I, I used to kind of admire the competitive spirit, but I think to this point, you know, it's, it's a detriment to his team. I think it's one thing to be aggressive and to be driven and to have a motor and, certainly he's phenomenally talented as a basketball player and just as an athlete. But uh, he strikes me as one of those guys that unless he actually cedes some control and, and starts to not be really who he is personally, I see these troubles continuing to plague the team that he's on as far as their inability to get out of the first round these last few seasons. I think that there, you know, they were the Thunder were at their best when they had more balance with Kevin Durant and, and even James Harden there. Now they've got Paul George in the fold. That I know that I feel like they did a pretty nice job, those two teammates, uh, keeping everything balanced throughout the regular season. But maybe it means that Russ needs to take a backseat to Paul. And I know that that's not really going to be in Russ's nature, but I, I don't see any other real good solution to it because. What they're doing now isn't working. And then on top of it, he's just an asshole. I mean, he doesn't need to be the way he is. I mean, I think that it was it was back in 2015 that uh, he straight he told Barry Trammell straight up, like where he asked why he wouldn't answer the questions, and he said, Because I don't like you. Yeah. And, and like it just it was it was so candid and straightforward and, and I don't know why or where where that came from initially. But to to hold a grudge against a member of the local media who covers you every single day and is just going about their job the same way you are yours, it's a little bit ridiculous. And and I think that in when it comes to behavior like that, it, you kind of need to look to some of the best professionals in the industry to see what, what they are saying or thinking about it. Steve Kerr, who I think is as well-respected as anybody as far as his, his philosophy and point of views on things, he thinks it's almost dangerous behavior or dangerous precedent to set, and not danger in the, in the way that, you know, we're, we're you know, it's a, it's a threat to how we function as society or anything like that. But uh, he said, I feel we have to be very careful as a league. We're in a good place right now. Yeah. We're very popular. Fans love the game, the social dynamic, the fashion. But more than anything, they love feeling a connection to the players. And I think it's important for the players to understand that's a key dynamic to this league. 
I don't think this is a healthy dynamic for this league for any player, any team, any local media, any national media. This is talking now about the Westbrook situation. There's always been this stuff. There's always been players and media members having issues and maybe non-responses or whatever. I don't think this is brand new, but we're in an era now where it's 24-7 access, and that access is what's driven revenue so much that players need to remember that. And I think that that's, that's pretty well said. And I, you know, I'm not so much worried about how you know there are going to be enough guys talking the right way and going about it, but it's just it's a bad look for his own personal brand, and then it's a and in turn makes it a bad look for the league. So he, he's a guy; it's a phenomenal talent, and he, he's he's kind of screwing it up. Yeah, um, he seems to be doing fine personally because he's you know yeah he, he's wealthy beyond description. He's got some endorsements, you know, whatever. He's a god in Oklahoma City. But and he clearly doesn't seem to care about what people think of him, which is fine with me. But, you know, I think it, the whole thing just rubs me the wrong way. It's like anybody can relate to this situation where you're, you're at work or you're in a group of friends or, or you're in any sort of relationship. Nobody likes somebody who's just pissed off and, and mad all the time and has a problem with everybody. Like, nobody likes that guy. That's not a good way... To, to create a, a good relationship in any walk of life. So I don't understand, you know, why the Thunder put up with it as, as well as they do. I mean, well, and the other thing, too, is if this is a personal decision, being likable makes you more money, dude. Like, how do you not see that part of it? Yeah, you know, Trammell, I don't know if you read it. Trammell actually wrote a column in the wake of uh, what happened in Game 3 and sort of explained... Uh, the relationship or lack thereof that he has with Westbrook. He mentioned the whole uh, story about Westbrook saying he just didn't like him. Uh, Trammell then went through the Thunder PR staff later that summer and asked if Westbrook would be willing to just meet somewhere and, and sort of clear the air and talk about, you know, off the record, just get to know each other as men to maybe, you know, to have a better relationship going forward. Westbrook declined that. Um, I guess Trammell's had like two interactions with him off the court over his whole career, just two. Um, and he said both of them were Crazy. actually pretty friendly, although not that friendly, but, you know, friendly, <laughs> friendly enough. So Trammell's, you know, acting like a man here. He's talking in public and trying to let people know because it, it became a big story. So I give him a lot of credit for sort of trying to explain his side of the story. I doubt Westbrook's going to do the same, but you know, <sighs> I don't know, man. It's it just, it's not so much this press conference situation that bothers me. It's just the whole Westbrook thing, because it's like you said. His whole aura. His whole yeah, he, he's a phenomenal player. I love watching him play. He's incredible, but it's just impossible to root for him at this point. He's just so unlikable, at least to, to the public eye. So, yeah, I've, I've had enough, and it would be nice just to see him grow up a little bit, mature. I mean, totally. you're a 30-year-old man. I think he has children. Like, you know, if you're a dad, you can't be acting like that. So it's just ridiculous. Um, let's move on. What's your interesting of the week? Uh, my interesting of the week takes me back to the bachelor party, kind of, not really. But it's okay. just the NFL draft. I'm, I'm excited, not because I think that, you know, anything happen and I shouldn't say happens we don't know what the result of this draft is going to be until at least September and even then it's going to take years to figure out who was right who was wrong and all that but I do think what the draft shows us and what I think is interesting about it is again and this kind of goes back a little bit to the Suns thing and yep. the way decisions uh, that organizations make 
uh, indicate where those organizations are in the competitive balance of the league. And I think that, you know, last week, late last week, you saw reports from the Raiders uh, or, or out of, uh, I guess, from Ian Rappaport that the Raiders had sent all of their scouts home. They weren't sure who to trust and that basically it's just like Mayock and and Gruden left trying to trying to figure out what they want to do it for. And uh, and, you know, I don't know if that's what the full story is there. Maybe they just felt like the hay was in the barn and their work was done. But it, it doesn't it doesn't smell great for, for, for them. And then on the flip side, just today, you had the Seahawks who, you know, have been a very steady franchise under John Schneider and Pete Carroll. Um, they only had four picks going into this draft. They just signed Russell Wilson to an enormous deal, and they were in a pickle with what to do about their uh, defensive end, Frank Clark, who led the team in 13 sacks but wanted a new contract, and they they'd offered him the franchise tag, which he wasn't willing to sign. Well, they tr- sign. They traded him to Kansas City. They get a first-round pick back. The kind of, I don't want to say headache, yeah, I guess the headache of what to do with him financially is gone. They really couldn't afford to pay him after paying Russ. And what they do is they turn a really good pass rusher into a first-round pick they desperately need. And it just it makes all the sense in the world. And, and you see kind of the way two organizations that have been trending in two different directions, uh, what the things are coming out of each of those organizations just before one of the biggest weekends of the year for the franchise. And it's not really a mystery why one team is is – perennially towards the top of the heap and one team is perennially towards the bottom yeah so well said i mean this is i look at the draft in the exact and you know what for that matter i I meant to and i meant to throw this in there too the arizona cardinals by all by all accounts there are mixed reports about what they're going to do with the number one overall pick which they've known about forever obviously and it may be that they know and they're not telling anybody but the fact that reports are coming out both both ways one that it's going to be murray one that it's not going to be murray and or, or two that's not going to be murray and three that it's undecided it's kind of unbelievable at this point yeah i don't pay any attention to the reports on anything one way or the other because as they say this is lying season ryan uh, yep. everybody's lying everybody's trying to float stuff out there to maybe get a a, a trade going or something like that uh, by the way man Damian Lillard is really playing well uh, Portland is up nine now with 330 left in the third uh, this is a hell of a game to watch it looks like our boy Westbrook's gonna go down which won't upset me at all but I digress <laughs> now I, I look I look at the draft in the exact same way that you articulated I look at it more from an organizational standpoint I mean I go back to when what was it Matt Millen was the GM of the of the Lions, and then they took mm-hmm. uh, a wide receiver in the first round with three years in a row. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Uh, that didn't work out very well for them. They've never been to the Super Bowl. I mean, you mentioned the Arizona Cardinals, who spent uh, a top 15 pick on Josh Rosen just last year. Now they're talking about parting ways with Rosen because they like Kyler Murray so much. I mean, the Cardinals, among the worst organizations in the league, and then, you know, the Patriots haven't had a top 25 pick now in the better part of two decades. And what do they do? They've been in nine straight AFC championship games and just won their sixth Super Bowl ring. So, you know, it doesn't, you don't need great draft picks to build a great organization. I just think it's funny when organizations go for the flashy player, whether it's a running back, receiver, quarterback, or the big name pass rusher and then you know they've got gaping holes on both lines and at safety and things like that so I love to look at the draft more from that standpoint than anywhere mm-hmm. and anything else and then of course I like to see 
where my guys from Alabama are going to go as well. It looks like both Quinnen Williams and Jonah Williams uh, are going to be high draft picks for them. And they're going to have some other guys going in the second and third and fourth round as well. So I'll be interested to see how all that happens. I don't really enjoy watching the draft that much. I'll be in mm-hmm. and out. Uh, if there's some NBA playoffs or baseball on, I'll be more likely to watch that. You know, I, To me, I don't need to see it minute to minute. Just tell me the next day who got drafted where, and, and I'll kind of scan the list. But that's about as deep as I get into it. Fair enough. Hit me with your interesting of the week. All right, let's move forward as I jot down the time. Um, my interesting of the week goes to an article that was written on ESPN.com late last week by a writer by, hold on, I want to make sure I get his name right. Um, excuse me, uh, the writer for ESPN named Baxter Holmes, who I had never heard mm-hmm. of prior to this art- article, but he wrote an unbelievable story, Ryan, on Greg Popovich, the head coach of the Spurs, and not really about his basketball at all. Uh, it was about how much Pop loves um, wine and, and fine dining, but it was a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you took the chance to read it since I recommended it earlier this yeah I've, i well, i haven't read the entire thing but i've i've read uh different quotes that people have pulled and tweeted and i've heard it discussed on multiple radio shows yeah. too so i i have a pretty good idea what what all is going on with it yeah well i highly recommend maybe on your flight tomorrow take a little time read the whole thing i recommend to everybody out there who's listening read the whole thing it's a long article but it's one of these articles it sort of builds to the end and, and there's details at the end that not necessarily are surprising, but they're interesting. And there's so much here. But for those out there who haven't read it, the basic gist is is that for years now, uh, Greg Popovich, on the road in particular, likes to take his entire team out. Every player, every coach, every front office executive who's traveling with the team, they go out to a restaurant that he chooses. He always chooses in whatever city he's in, and they get a private dining room, for everybody to sit and dine together. And then he chooses the menu, and he chooses the wine to accompany the menu. And uh, and he apparently knows as much about wine as literally almost anyone in the world. I mean, sommeliers who have, who have met him, and he's met a lot, say that he could probably even, you know, maybe pass a sommelier test, which people yeah. say is one of the hardest tests in the world to pass. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, the master small is tougher to pass than, than the bar. Yeah. Um, so it's just amazing. You know, as much as he knows about basketball, just the, the depth of knowledge he has about wine and food in general, and just how much he enjoys it and, and how much it means to him and how much it means to the team and the players that have played there. And you have guys that, you know, even guys, uh, who played there just one year, they said the best part about being on the Spurs was getting to go to these dinners with Popovich. And his, you know, there's so many details in this article. Again, I, I encourage everyone to read it. But one of the details that I found most fascinating is he. everybody is required to sit at a table of six. He thinks that that's the perfect number of people to sit together at a, at a dinner table because it's like people can't have their own side conversations. It's just yeah. a perfect number. You know, that's not just a, a – and I've heard that's not just a Popovich thing. I've heard that in, in psychology that that's, oh. that's been documented over time, that as soon as a, a group of humans grows from six to seven, 
you will almost automatically notice that group start to splinter in conversation. That 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 six people can have conversation together, but seven really can't. It's kind of a fascinating phenomenon if you if you try to take notice of this in in everyday life. Yeah, which I'm gonna try to do. Because I didn't realize that. I thought that this was like a Popovich special thing. I, mean, I think he's probably read these, you know, studies or, or, or yeah. whatnot, and that's what's behind it. So, so a, a few more details. You know, he, like I said, he picks everything out. But what he'll do is he gets to the restaurant way ahead of everybody else because he likes to talk to the different people that work there. He's formed like real relationships with people who work at these restaurants. Even the kitchen staff. He'll go, you know, when he goes to. Denver, say, for example, he'll go and say hi to the chef that he hadn't seen in a couple years, and he always tips the people that work at these restaurants an incredible amount. Um, he'll sometimes spend upwards. Uh, he, he picks up the bill for all of these. I guess he makes $11 million yeah, a yeah. year. Uh, he pays and I he's doing for, these $10 and $20,000 dinners for everybody. Yeah, and sometimes more. Like There was one night in Sacramento where he spent something like $40,000 on wine just that night. And then tip the sommelier, you know, five or six thousand dollars in cash. Oh. And and people will say that he's like made sommeliers' careers just because of how you know he he had a great sommelier at this restaurant in say Philly, and then he goes to New York and tells another you know owner of some restaurant about this person that he met. Then that person will hire the sommelier away from another city. He's made careers all over the country for people who work in restaurants. And he says that, uh, you know, Popovich wouldn't be interviewed for this story at all. But basically people say that his legacy isn't going to be basketball. It's going to be these dinners that he's had all around the country. And then one other detail that I found fascinating, some years ago somebody decided that, you know, these dinners were so special that they needed to start like a scrapbook. So it's, it's the equipment guy's job to collect the wine bottles of all the wine that they drink at every one of these meals and take the menus as well. Then he creates a scrapbook with the labels from all the different wine bottles. Wow. And, and, they, and they present that to Popovich on his birthday every year. So that's just such a, a cool thing that they do just to kind of show their appreciation and thanks. Because, again, he's paying for all of this. So it's just an amazing well, thing. Amazing. It's an amazing story. Uh, I think pa- I admire Popovich so much. I know he rubbed some people the wrong way for his sort of uh, dismissive and perfunctory sideline interviews that you see him do. But I just think he's an incredible person uh, in a number of ways. Obviously, I don't know him. I, I wish I did. Um, I-, I would love just to get to go to one of these dinners. I mean, how awesome would that be? So it's just an incredible story that I recommend. Honestly, Ryan, this is one of the best sports-related stories that I can ever remember reading. I love it so much. I think you can tell Man. how I'm going on and on. Uh, but I can't recommend this story highly enough. A ringing endorsement. Yeah, I, I've, like I said, I've read tidbits, and I've heard a lot of people uh, quoting the story, screenshotting parts of the story, and, and talking about the dynamics and, and all that goes into it. But I, I have not read it top to bottom myself, and I, and I definitely look forward to it. All right, so that's my interesting of the week. Uh, we're getting towards the end here as you embark on your bachelor party. Uh, what's your wild card of the week? Well, as a man who's who's been through a bachelor party yourself and one that was uh, sporting event driven and uh, a couple a multi day affair, give me one do and one don't. Okay. Um... 
or I guess, you know, a, a tip, so to speak. I would just say really try, and you know, I guess this is a tip for life in general, but just try to enjoy it and really appreciate your buddies who have, who have put forth the time and effort to come and be with you, you know, uh, and mm-hmm. let them know how much you appreciate it because it, it's a, it's such a special thing in, in these moments, these weekends, they come and go. And, and, you know, I was just thinking about today, knowing you were going to talk about your bachelor party, I thought about mine, but more I thought about all the different ones that I've been to and what makes a good one and what makes a bad one. And I think that everyone has a right mix. You know, it's like the Popovich having six people at a dinner table. You don't want to have too many people. Obviously, you can't control that now, but, you know, little groups will form. Uh, but just enjoy the whole thing and and just try to just soak it in and, and enjoy all of it for what it is and really what it's about. You mentioned it at the top of the show. It's about spending time with your best friends and the people that mean the most to you in your life that you've known for all these years. And I think that that's the best part of it is just the time that you get to spend with the people that you like the most in your life. So I guess that would be my biggest piece of advice. I think that's excellent advice. And I think you, you kind of hit it with the, you know, take, take the time to just enjoy where you are, who you're with and share that with people. I think it's a, it'll be a good weekend to try to bury the cell phone for most of the, most of the weekend with the, with the exception of uh, making sure to get uh, plenty of photos to just to capture the memories. But, uh, but yeah, just a, it seems like I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to unplug, so to speak, and just be with the people I'm with. All right. Well, on that note, uh, my wild card is going to focus on the bachelor party as well, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, I was just going to, you know, I said I was thinking about various ones that I've been to, but what is one or two of your favorite bachelor parties that you've been to? I've been to some good ones. Uh, Recently, last summer, I went to one, I mentioned at the top of the show, New York City. And uh, and we went to a really great steakhouse, went to Peter Luger's Steakhouse, which was just a a really classic experience and unlike uh, any steakhouse I'd been to previously. And uh, it also included a trip to the comedy cellar, which if you've never done that in New York is just, is one of the most famous comedy venues. It's, it's sometimes tough to get tickets. You often have to wait for hours in line to get in, but then it's this lineup of like seven or eight comics that do 20 minute sets. And, uh, and sometimes some of the most famous people in the world just drop by to kind of <clears> polish up on new new material. And we didn't get one of those individuals when we were there, but it was, you know, it's one of the hardest times I've, I've ever laughed. And just sharing those laughs and those meals with uh, with good people is uh, is a good time. I've also had really a couple really great uh, bachelor parties in Lake Tahoe. Uh, I think that during the summer especially, that can be really fun. You've got – I did one in, uh, one in South Lake where – Actually, I did, did two in South Lake where there's a little bit of lake time, a lot of casino time, some a lot of outdoor drinking time, beer pong time, and uh, and I just kind of like being away. I've done Vegas a few times and it's really fun, but I think Vegas can be tough with a bigger group yep. uh, as far as being able to keep everyone together. So I, I really liked um, Tahoe for the reasons of it's it's kind of like just you and your crew out there, uh, so to speak, and. And then, uh, and then the New York one, we just did a couple really kind of classic, fun things. And then, and then Cabo was great too. And I can tell you, we had f- so much fun in Cabo San Lucas that our our villa that we were in overlooked uh, the ocean. We never even made it down to the beach. We just uh-huh. hung out in our we hung it hung out out in our pool. We made it into town at night, and uh, and at times. 
Uh, our feet did touch the sand, but like we never went in the ocean the entire time we were there because we were having so much fun at the at the place we rented out, which had a big screen TV. And we brought uh, for one meal, brought private chefs in to cook for us, which was really cool. I'd never done that before. Uh, it was actually really cost efficient too. So uh, those those three. Uh, Lake- Tahoe, Carlos Lucas, and New York City. What about you? Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about these, and and for me, it almost when I when I go back over the years, it doesn't really even matter where you go for these things. It, it's more about yeah um, who you're with and and sort of mm-hmm. what you do when you're there. And every one of my favorite memories from these very special parties, without fail, are times where you were kind of like split off from the bigger group with three or four or five guys, yeah. whether that's sitting at a blackjack table in Vegas, or, or I remember I went right back somewhere or yeah. Yeah. I, I remember one when the one I went to in Cabo, uh, a bunch of people went out for like a group dinner one night and a few of us weren't really feeling the vibe. And we ended up just sort of walking down off the main drag, which may not have been the smartest thing in the world in Cabo. Uh, but we walked down, you know, some local alleys until we found like a, a street taco vendor. And that was probably the best part of the trip. Um, or, you know, even my bachelor party, which I, you know, not not to brag. Which was it, an epic one. Yeah. Yeah. It was my bachelor party. I really felt like we accomplished really everything that I set out to do. But even in that. Uh, the, I think you got to enlighten the people as to what you did for your bachelor party. Because it was, a for a sports fan, an awesome lineup. Yeah, I did about as much sports as you can do. So we went down to Atlanta um, for Labor Day weekend, and the stars just totally aligned with the schedule uh, because the Braves were in town, uh, Alabama was playing in that Chick-fil-A kickoff game the first weekend of the season, and the NASCAR race was in town. So Friday night, we all went to the Braves game. Saturday, we went to the Alabama game. Sunday, we went to the NASCAR race. It was Labor Day, so Monday's Labor Day. Then most people left Monday morning, but me and a few guys stayed on Monday and went to the Braves day game and then flew out that Amazing. Night. So four sporting events in four <laughs> days uh, awesome. is what we I did. But even around that, so actually I ended up going to five sporting events because on Saturday morning, um, it was the first day of college football, we went, me and like four buddies woke up all hungover and we went uh, into town. We were staying a little bit outside the city. We took a cab, I think, or somebody drove, I don't remember, into town and went to the Georgia Tech noon kickoff against Eli. Wow. And, 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 <laughs> and went to the varsity for burgers before that. I think you got a problem, man. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, what I was going, what I was talking about before that. You know, just the little groups, you know, just the four of us splitting off and going to the varsity and the Georgia Tech game, I think we only stayed for about a quarter. I mean, tickets were like $5 outside the stadium. Mm -hmm. But just that little, you know, split-off group was such a fun thing. Uh, And so, you know, that's what I would say. Any bachelor party you go to, it's the sort of little sub-experiences within the big sort of ticket items that I think ended up being the most memorable times. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's well said. I, I also especially appreciate those times and those moments. So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, enjoying some of those this weekend. And I think you're a wise man to focus on those. 
Well, I'm excited for you. In some ways, I'm jealous because bachelor parties are awesome. And as a 41-year-old, I don't have many more ahead of me. <laughs> Although I did go to one in South Lake Tahoe uh, the, for the Sweet 16, as I detailed a couple weeks ago. And that mm-hmm. one was really, really fun, too. Um, South Lake is a really good place for a bachelor party. But that we've gone on long enough. I really hope you have a great trip, a safe trip. And get back Thank you, so sir. We, can, we can all hear about, you know, certainly not all of the details, but some of the details <laughs> um, next Tuesday night. So have great, great time, safe travels, and I'll talk to you next week, man. All right, man. Have a good one. All right. Good night, everybody. Sleep tight. Good night, y'all.